We're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 2. There's one of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is in the book of Jonah. Little little book of Jonah, you may know the story from, maybe if you grew up as a Christian, you heard the story of Jonah and the, and the fish. Uh, there's a verse in chapter 2, verse 8, that says that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. And we haven't had much of an opportunity to talk about one of the dominant themes in the Old Testament and one of the most important themes for us to understand as Christians or as people trying to figure out what the Christian faith is all about, this topic of idolatry. It may seem for a lot of people like, well, idolatry is what people used to do or maybe what people in certain places, obscure parts of the world maybe still do. Maybe you saw that movie Gladiator. You guys see that movie? And there's that scene where, you know, where he sort of bows down to his little figures. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, like, that's crazy, but people used to do that. Um, They would make these little figures, and then they would bow down to them and pray to them before fighting or before some event where they really thought they needed the God's help. We don't think of idolatry necessarily as something that's relevant to us, but if you begin to understand what the Bible is saying about this issue called idolatry, you find out that it actually is incredibly relevant for us even in our day and age. If you think of idolatry as creating God substitutes out of the good stuff that God has made. Christians believe that God has made everything that is, and he made it good. But we also believe that sin, brokenness, selfishness has entered into the world and marred the creation. And part of the way it's been twisted and marred is that human beings find it convenient and preferable to trust things other than God, good things that God has made, and to make them into substitutes for God, to make them ultimate in a way that only God should be. And as we're going to see in this passage in Jeremiah 2, when that happens, everything falls apart. Or as Bob Dylan said, everything is broken. Right? There's this ultimate worship issue at the core of our being. And because of that, everything is broken. So let's look at Jeremiah 2. This is rather a long passage, so I'll try to read it well. And I will try to go fairly fast tonight because we're already a little little behind our normal schedule. Jeremiah chapter 2. The word of the Lord came to me, Jeremiah writes, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who devoured her were held guilty, and disaster overtook them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob, all you clans of the house of Israel. This is what the Lord says. What fault? Did your fathers find in me that they strayed so far from me? They followed worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us up out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of deserts and rifts, a land of drought and darkness, a land where no one travels and no one lives? I brought you into a fertile land to eat its fruit and rich produce, but you came and defiled my land 
and made my inheritance detestable. The priests did not ask, where is the Lord? Those who deal with the law did not know me. The leaders rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal, a false god, following worthless idols. Therefore, I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord, and I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coast of Kittim and look, send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not really even gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glory for worthless idols. Be appalled at this, O heavens, and shudder with great horror, declares the Lord. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Is Israel a servant, a slave by birth? Why then has he become plunder? Lions have roared. They have growled at him. They have laid waste his land. His towns are burned and deserted. Also, the men of Memphis and Taphanes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this on yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? Now, why go to Egypt to drink water from the Shehor? And why go to Assyria to drink water from the river? Your wickedness will punish you. Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. Long ago you broke off your yoke and tore off your bonds. You said, I will not serve you. Indeed, on every high hill and under every spreading tree, you laid down as a prostitute. I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Although you wash yourself with soda and use an abundance of soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the sovereign Lord. How can you say, I'm not defiled? I have not run after the bales. See how you behaved in the valley? Consider what you have done. You are a swift she-camel running here and there, a wild donkey accustomed to the desert, sniffing the wind in her craving, in her heat, who can restrain her? Any males that pursue her need not tire themselves. At mating time, they will find her. Do not run until your feet are bare and your throat is dry. But you said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. As a thief is disgraced when he's caught, so the house of Israel is disgraced. They, their kings and their officials, their priests and their prophets, they say to wood, you are my father, and to stone, you gave me birth. They've turned their backs to me and not their faces, yet when they're in trouble, they say, come and save us. Where then are the gods you made for yourselves? Let them come if they can save you when you are in trouble. For you have as many gods as you have towns, O Judah. Why do you bring charges against me? You have all rebelled against me, declares the Lord. In vain I punished your people. They did not respond to correction. Your sword has devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. You of this generation consider the word of the Lord. Have I been a desert to Israel or a land of great darkness? 
Why do my people say we are free to roam? We will come to you no more. Does a maiden forget her jewelry, a bride, her wedding ornaments? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How skilled you are at pursuing love. Even the worst of women can learn from your ways. On your clothes men find the lifeblood of the innocent poor. Though you did not catch them breaking in, yet in spite of all this you say, I am innocent, he's not angry with me. But I will pass judgment on you because you say, I have not sinned. Why do you go about so much changing your ways? You will be disappointed by Egypt as you were by Assyria. You will also leave that place with your hands on your head. For the Lord has rejected those you trust. You will not be helped by them. It's a sobering passage and a long passage, I know. But let's pray and then ask the Lord to help us understand what he has for us tonight. Lord, we do thank you that you speak forthrightly to your people. We thank you that you don't sugarcoat things when things are serious and need to be dealt with. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't wink at sin, but you dealt with it as it needed to be dealt with in Jesus. We pray, Lord, that we would be overwhelmed again at what unspeakable mercy it is that you have sent Jesus, the living water, the one who offers us water that will make us thirsty no more, even though we are the people who have rejected you, our God. We pray that we would be overwhelmed again and sobered as we look into your word now. Send your spirit and help us in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm basically going to kind of go through this passage and make some comments. I think the best way to follow this teaching of Jeremiah 2 is really to follow the passage itself. And I think it's important that we start right at the beginning. Uh, because there's a couple things I don't want us to miss that are big picture things that for some of you may be obvious things, but for others, maybe not so obvious. So it's important to, to start really at the beginning. Here's what's remarkable about where this passage starts. God is one who loves and has married himself to a people. That's the context out of which Jeremiah 2 comes. And I don't want to just rush by that. If you've been around RUF, you've probably heard of this idea before. I've tried to make this point repeatedly this semester, that God doesn't just want a people who do the right things and obey the rules. He wants to have a people with whom he can be intimate. It's been that way from the beginning. And his plan of redemption is not just to give you a get-out-of-hell-free card. It's to restore you to the loving, intimate relationship that really is best described by marriage. And, and that's a remarkable thing. What God is like this who marries himself to his people and then opens up his heartache for all to see. What kind of God is this who marries himself to his people and even though his people spurn his love, continues to plead with them and tell them 
about his broken heart. I don't think for a lot of people, that's what they think of when they think of Christianity. I suspect even if I sat each of you down and said, tell me what is Christianity? I just don't know if that's the word picture that you would run to. But that's where Jeremiah starts here. If you want to understand the heart of what Christianity is about, it's about this, that God, the Lord God who created heaven and earth, has married himself to a people. And in spite of all of their running around on him, prostituting themselves to all kinds of other lovers, he's not back down, but still loves them. Is that what you think of when you think of God? Is that what you think of when you think of Christianity? It shows us that Christianity is not just a religion of ideas and rules. So we need passages like this because I think all too often, whether it's in a sort of legalistic, fundamentalistic kind of background that a lot of you come from, or if it's more of a theologically um, rigorous tradition like maybe you found the Reformed tradition to be, both of those groups can easily descend into thinking of Christianity as being about ideas and about doing the right things. And we need passages like this to remind us that that's not at the heart of what Christianity is about. At the heart of Christianity is a marriage, a bad marriage. My friend Scott Rowley likes to say, God knows what it's like to be in a bad marriage because he's married to you. <laughs> and it's true. And that, that, that starting point changes the way you think of everything else. It's not like Christianity says, well, if you beautify yourself and you dress yourself up and you make yourself really appealing, then maybe God will look at you. See, if you start there, it's a completely different religion. Unfortunately, I think a lot of people who've grown up in Christian churches, that's their idea of the starting place. That it's up to me to make myself beautiful so that God might pay some attention to me. But that's not, that's not where Christianity starts. Christianity starts with God marrying himself to a people who don't deserve it. And, and, and you know what else is fascinating to me about these first three verses? God remembers the wandering in the desert in a remarkable way. Because if you read the story of Exodus, I don't think you would describe it this way, like God does in verse 2. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you followed me, and you loved me, and followed me through the desert, through a land not sown. Now, have you all been paying attention as we've been talking about some of these passages from Exodus? That's not what happened. That's not what happened. As soon as they were across the river into the promised land, they're complaining that God brought them there to kill them. They're fighting with him. They're murmuring. They're complaining. So what gives? And I think the only way to understand these first three verses is God, the omniscient, the one who sees and knows everything, chooses, chooses to look at this period through the eyes of of a lover. I don't know if that, I don't know, maybe, maybe there are people that are sort of a little squeamish at that idea, but God, I, I don't think he forgot. I think he chooses to look upon those days with fondness 
the fondness of new love. It's the honeymoon period. And it's fascinating, you know, sometimes if you talk to people that have been married a long time about the way they tell their stories, sometimes they forget things that were difficult. Now, sometimes they remember things that were difficult, but often they'll remember the best things the, from the glory years. We do that with all kinds of things, right? People talk about the glory days, and we forget about. That's what God is doing here. Again, do you think of God as somebody who nitpicks and jumps on you every time you step out of line in the least little bit? Get your heart around this picture. God is a lovesick husband who thinks back to the glory days, even though they weren't really glory days. But from his perspective, he's so in love with his people that he thinks of it as a honeymoon period. Now, I think that's remarkable. And again, you've got to try to get your heart around that if you want to enter into the rest of this passage. If this does, if, if, until you get your heart around that idea, you can't make sense of all the judgment kind of language in this passage. Because if you read this as God has been waiting for the opportunity to blast them, and okay, they've stepped out of line, now he gets his shot. If you think that he enjoys blasting them more than the honeymoon days, you really have misunderstood Jeremiah 2. God is heartbroken that these days have come to an end. Well, what did happen? What went wrong? He says it here in verse 5. And it's heartbreaking that our God has to ask this question of his people. What fault did your fathers find in me? Now, right away, we understand we're talking about the rupture of a relationship. And God is asking them, what led to the rupture of this relationship? God speaks as a scorned lover. Remembering the honeymoon period with fondness, but then now recalling the way they had rejected him and pledged their love to someone else. Again, can you get your heart around that idea? Or do you think of God as sort of like a cosmic businessman who sort of like runs things very efficiently but rather dispassionately? Or do you think of God as sort of an abusive parent who's always nitpicking and looking for an opportunity to smack his kids? God speaks here as a scorned lover whose heart is broken. That's remarkable. Now, I think that this question, verse 5, is, is a really helpful for one for us to think about our own relationship with God. Because whenever there's a rupture in our relationship with God, it, it, it begins here with finding fault in him. Idolatry, turning to other God substitutes, always begins with finding fault in God. He's not coming through for me. He doesn't care about me. He's not powerful enough or interested enough to take care of me. Therefore, I better take care of myself. I better find something or someone who can protect me, who can give me what I really need because God can't or won't. Idolatry doesn't come out of the blue. It comes first by looking at God and saying, you're not enough. Do you understand that? 
I think a lot of times we don't really diagnose very well what's going on in our hearts. And this, this Jeremiah 2 passage is really helpful for us understanding what's really going on. If you're struggling with God, if you're struggling with Christianity, I suspect that at the bottom of it somewhere, there's some fault that you found with God. And there may be very good reasons for it. It may be passages in the Bible. It may be experiences you've had with Christians. It may be things you've experienced in your life. But it's important that you understand that at the root of it, there's something that you've decided about God that he's not good enough. Martin Luther went so far as to say that we, before we break any of the Ten Commandments, we first break the first commandment. The first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods beside me. And before you decide that you're going to kill somebody with your gossip, before you decide that you're going to steal, before you decide that you're going to look at porn, you first imagine God to be something less than he really is. And so often when we try to fight against sin and we try to change the way we live, we just deal on the horizontal level, like with promising to try harder or getting people to kick us in the butt so we feel bad and we won't do it again. We try all these different things, but we never actually diagnose what have we thought about God. God helps us here by saying, ultimately, at the bottom of your rebellion, of the bottom of your idolatry, is you found fault with me. I think another thing about this fault finding, it has a way of making us forget what God has done by focusing us on what he hasn't done. Now this, this works out with your other relationships too. But think about this with regard to God. Often you'll find that the fault that you found in God is connected to you focusing on something he hasn't done or hasn't given you rather than focusing on what he has done. And that's where God goes next in this passage. He says, look in verse 6, they did not ask, where is the Lord who brought us out of Egypt and led us through the barren wilderness, through a land of death? They forgot all of that. All they were thinking about is, what have you done for me lately? What have you done for me lately? What are you giving me now? You're not coming through for me now. They didn't stop to think, oh yeah, this is the God who demonstrated his faithfulness to me. Therefore, if he's not giving me what I want right now, perhaps he has a reason for it. That never entered their mind. Because in their fault finding, they're focused on what they don't have. They've forgotten who God is and what he has done for them. Walter Brueggemann puts it this way. He says, the recital of Yahweh's story was no longer on their lips. They disregarded their shaping memory as a culture, as a group of people. And where the story of Yahweh is forgotten, Israel disregards its peculiar covenantal way in the world and soon loses its reason for being. It's important that we remember who God is and what he's done. And ultimately, Jeremiah says down in verse 19, they have no awe of God. And again, this connects to this fault finding because fault finding says there really is nothing about God that I should be in awe of. God is completely understandable to me and he has a lot of explaining to do. A lack of awe 
is basically seen in your life when you stand above God and say, God, I know what you've done, and I know why you've done it. And you better explain yourself. Awe is very different. Awe says, God, I have no idea why you've done what you've done. But help me to trust you. Help me to believe what I do know about you. Help me to trust you even in the dark. When there's no awe, when there's no awe, fault finding has very fertile ground to grow in. Right? The other thing that we learn from this passage in Jeremiah 2 that's so helpful is that worship really matters. Worship is not just a spiritual issue for religious people. You know, the people in our culture that think, well, you know, those religious people, they have maybe a certain temperamental disposition that makes them more religious. It's just sort of something they have that we don't have. The fact is, what the Bible says, and I think this is proven, pretty easy to prove, Everybody in this world lives for something in an ultimate way. You may not want to call it a God, but it functions in all the way that a religion does. What the Bible's saying and what Jeremiah 2 is saying is that worship is not just an issue for religious people. It's everybody's issue. And it's incredibly important to understand that if you would make sense of both the goodness and the brokenness in this world. Because what Jeremiah is saying here is that when worship goes awry, brokenness comes to everybody that it touches. And it's not just the people that worship awry. Even the people that are affected by the people that are worshiping wrongly get some of the brokenness. In other words, idolatry is a concept that's important not just for you to understand yourself as an individual. It's a helpful concept to understand the school you go to. It's a helpful concept to understand your family, your RUF group, your culture, your country. Idolatry is at work in all of those different spheres, right? Idolatry, it says in verse 11, look at verse 11, is ascribing glory to something other than God himself. Right? That's where, he, that's where he says it. Has a nation ever changed its gods? But my people have exchanged their glory. Do you see how glory and gods are synonyms there in the structure of the Hebrew poetry? Your God is your glory. It's the thing that you regard as ultimate. Now often you don't know that it's your ultimate until trials or disappointments come. There's lots of things that God sometimes brings in our lives to help us see what is really ultimate in our lives. You may think that this thing is ultimate until this thing is taken away, and then you realize, whoa, you know, uh, this is really ultimate. Like, if I would die if I didn't have this. I just never realized it because I've always had it. I never had to think about it. But there's something that's functioning for you in an ultimate way, Right? In other words, if you're anxious all the time, you probably have made control an ultimate goal for you. And if you're anxious, it's because you realize that you can't be in control. But you know what's fascinating is, if you're kind of bored, you may actually have made control your ultimate too. You just maybe have structured your life in such a way 
that you kind of can control most everything. You maybe have figured out how to eliminate every uncertainty in your life. And so you don't have real relationships and you don't really risk in any sort of way, right? And you still may have this ultimate addiction to control. Sometimes it's hard to figure out what's going on, but what this passage is saying is that worship is at the heart of all people. And idolatry is really a two-part sin. Look at verse 13. God says it this way, My people have committed two sins. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What do we learn from this picture? We learn that we were made thirsty. And we were made thirsty so that we could drink. And if we turn from God, we're going to have to find water somewhere. In other words, worship is inevitable. We will worship something. And as God says in Isaiah 54, what we used as our call to worship, he is both our husband and our maker. Therefore, rejecting his love, get this, it's important, rejecting God's love puts you on a collision course with the world that he's made. Because he's not just the one who loves you, he's also the one who made you. Your husband is your maker. So many of our problems, I think, in understanding Christianity are we take either he's our maker or he's our husband. We think he's all love, but he doesn't really have much concern about how we live, which is a weird idea of love, but it's one that's unfortunately all too common. Or we think God is our maker and he tells us what to do and we better get with the program. But there's no sense of intimacy and closeness. Christianity brings the two of those together and says, get your mind and your heart around this idea. Your maker is your husband. He doesn't just stand up there trying to invent ways to make you miserable. As a matter of fact, what he says in this passage is, so much of your misery is because you've spurned my love and you've tried to find water, life-giving water in places where it can't be found. Do you understand that? But God doesn't say it like, you know, shame on you. He says it like, would you open your eyes? Would you open your heart? Would you turn back to me? Human flourishing cannot fully happen without our loves being properly aligned. That's what we learn from this passage. But God loves us too much to let us spurn his love without consequences. Now, I don't have time to go all through this, and you've got to be careful how you think about this, but I, I want to just mention this briefly. In verses 14 through 19, we have a clear picture of misery resulting from the spurning of God's love. And I think it's important that we say that you won't always be able to trace every bit of misery in your life or in the lives of people you know to particular ways that they spurn God's love. So be careful with how you apply this. But I do think a message we need to get from this is that God loves his people enough that he will not let them spurn his love without consequences. But look at verse 19. He says, your wickedness will punish you Your backsliding will rebuke you. Consider then and realize how evil and bitter it is for you when you forsake the Lord your God and have no awe of me. And I love that he says not just that it's evil, because we'd expect the judgmental God of the Old Testament. I hope you don't still believe that that's all the God of the Old Testament is about. We'd expect him to say it's evil, bad, bad thing to do. But he says it's bitter. And I know that you've tasted that it's bitter. 
and my heart breaks for you. Not just that you've forsaken my love, but that you've had to taste the bitterness that comes from that. Do you understand? Now, our hearts, of course, tell us that independence is life. And there's a, a great example of that in, this, in, this, in verse 20. But in reality, independence from God, again, puts you on a collision course with reality. It's like, you know, that, that kid's book, there's this, this story about the kite that wants to be free and finally gets free from the string. And what happens when the kite gets free from the string? Well, it flops around for a little bit, and then it comes crashing to the earth. Kites don't fly very well unless they're held onto, right? But kite, the kite thinks that the ultimate would be to be set free from this, from this string. If only this string wasn't holding me back, then I could really soar. But the fact is, kites are made to be held onto. And unless there's something pulling as the wind goes this way and something pulling this way, it doesn't stay up in the air very well, right? Or it'd be like, you know, if you're out fishing one day. Caleb told me he just got his a fishing license. He's ready to go now. But if you're out fishing one day and, and you know, you're, you're um, you know, there by the river and all of a sudden this fish jumps up, up on the bank and starts shouting, yay, I'm free, finally, right? It's, it's, it's silly. The fish is soon, soon to be dead. A fish free of water is not in a, a really great place, right? And neither are people free of God's love. It's not what you were made for. It's like trying to breathe on the moon, right? It hurts us. Ultimately, idolatry dehumanizes us, right? And Jeremiah is not afraid to use graphic language to make this point. Look here in verse 23. I mean, he used, you know, you're like a wild donkey in heat. Wow. And, and, you know, we're nice people. We don't like to think of ourselves that way. But one of the things that we learn from this passage is that idolatry dehumanizes us. Anytime I've ever had a student who did something they never believed they would ever do, idolatry was always at the heart of it. Always. I've had those conversations with people over tears saying, I never, ever thought I would do this. And idolatry is always at the root of it. Idolatry dehumanizes us. It lies to us. It's like an addiction of sorts. It makes us crazy, right? Look at verse 20, 25. You said, it's no use. I love foreign gods and I must go after them. Doesn't that sound like the language of addiction? Look at verse 27. This is craziness. You say to a piece of wood, you're my father. And to the stone, you gave me birth. Like if you can step back from that, You'd be like, well, that's not, that's crazy. Stone, wood, they're not really the ones that have given me everything that I have. But when you worship an idol, that's what you begin to think. Tim Keller says idols create delusional fields. They are lies, but they also lie to us. And we get caught up in this web of lies and we don't even know what's real anymore. We begin to feel things like, if I don't go to Belmont and graduate with a music business degree, my life will have new meaning. I'm kidding. But I've known people that have thought that. And sometimes, until you graduate, it's hard to know that that's crazy, right? Or unless, unless I'm married by the time I'm 25, I just don't know how I'm going to live. And I've been there. And then I was 26, and then I was 27, and then I was 28 and 29, 30, 31, 
and on, right? Idolatry is crazy. But where's Jesus fit into all this? Where's the God to the rescue part of this whole thing? I, I think, again, you know, don't make light of this. Look at verse 22. I, I mean, even before you look at verse 22, remember, Jeremiah 2 is in the Bible. God didn't have to tell his people any of this. God could have just said, okay, that's it. That's enough. How dare they? run after other lovers, put their hope in Egypt and Assyria? Are you kidding me? That's what God could have said, and he could have wiped them all out. I mean, like I tell people all the time, the fact that there is Genesis chapter 4 is amazing and not to be taken for granted. And the fact that there's Genesis 5 and then 6 and, and that the story keeps going. Every time the story keeps going, it's God's grace at work and God's commitment to his covenant promise way back in Genesis chapter 3 that he would send the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. So how does Jeremiah 2 fit into that? Remember where we are in the big picture of the story. God's people have been delivered out of Egypt, out of slavery. They've been brought into the promised land. But the promised land isn't enough. This is the great point, really, of every passage in the Old Testament. No matter how great the deliverance, no matter how beautiful the picture of God's grace, still not enough. The whole Old Testament leaves us crying out, God, surely there must be more. And so there is. God is so gracious to not allow our idols to satisfy us. Do you understand that? God is so gracious to say, when you defile yourself, you can't just fix it yourself. You can't just wash it off. That's verse 22. The stain of your guilt is before me, and it's good for God. It's good for God to tell us that because nobody needs a superficial healing when there's poison festering underneath. And what the Bible says is that no matter how much Jesus says you clean the outside of the cup, there's poison underneath. And God has got to do something about that. And so here's the astonishing thing. God says, here's the sin you've committed. You have rejected me, the living water. And then lo and behold, comes Jesus sitting at a well Telling a woman who's had husband after husband after husband and who's still thirsting. If you knew who you were talking to and the water that I could give you, you would ask me for water. And I would give you water to drink and you would be thirsty no more. If you knew me and the water I have, you would know that I could make rivers of living water flow up within you. Not just water, living water that you can go to, but living water that actually wells up from within you. It, it takes this image that you've, you've, spurned, you've spurned the living water, and God doesn't just say, well, I'll give you another chance to drink. No, what Jesus comes and promises is to make the water spring up within you. 
Like the level of intimacy goes from, here, have a drink, to it's gushing up within you. Because there's no other way to explain how close God is going to be with you through the work of Jesus. Union with Christ. The water isn't just over here for you to drink. It's now in you through the work of Jesus. And do you understand? Like, how crazy is that? God says, my people have committed two sins. They've, they've, they've forsaken me, the living water. They've dug their own cisterns, even though they don't work. But I'm still going to send Jesus to give them the living water that they don't want. Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. It's astonishing, the grace of our God. Well, why does all this matter? Let me close with an application or two. What I want you to see in this passage, and I I want you to see this because you need to see this if you would know how to use the good news of the gospel to fight against your sin. You need to see that when God comes to rescue you, and he comes to rescue you again and again, he takes generally a two-pronged attack on your idolatry. I want you to know this, that God is not just sitting up in heaven saying, you're an idol worshiper and you need to figure out what's going on and you need to fix it. And you better get cracking because time is wasting, right? No, God undertakes to complete the good work he began in you. How does he do that? He generally does two things. He generally will show you your idols are ridiculous and they don't work. And I'm just going to give you a warning. Often that's very painful. Because when you've put your hope in something that you thought was working and then it gets revealed to be ridiculous, it makes you look foolish. Maybe other people don't see it, but you know it. And it's hard to go there. It's especially hard to go there if you're still trying to present yourself to God. But God's way of bringing healing is to show you that you can't clean up yourself and I'm going to take up the warfare and do battle with your idols. And the first place I'm going to start is I'm going to show you that they don't work. You're still thirsty. Don't deny it. You're still thirsty. So that's the first thing he does. The second is he says, you know what? You already have in the gospel what you're trying to get from your idols. He doesn't just come say, look, your idols don't work, so quit it. He says, your idols don't work but you don't need them because I'm the living water. I'm the living water, right? A two-pronged attack. In other words, we see this so clearly at the cross. Which of your idols would die for you? Which one did? God says, I love you, and I'd fight to defend you. So what happened? What fault did you find in me? What have you found lacking in me? What have you forgotten about who God is and what he's done? In other words, before you run to putting your hope in your talent or your looks or your money or your position or your relationships or whatever it is, you first have to believe and you first have to believe the lie that God can't take care of you. And and, and Jesus comes and says, how can you believe that? Look at the cross. It shows us how to fight against sin, right? Sin is the rupturing of relationship, right? But God comes and says, 
in Jesus, I take everything that that rupture deserved, and I'm still, I'm still pursuing you, right? Jesus would rather die than live without you. Do you believe that? Now, if you believe that God is just the cosmic judge who all he cares about is making sure everybody plays by the rules, well, then you can't make sense of a passage like this. But if you understand God is the one who's married himself to you, he's bound up his own joy with you responding to that love. Let's pray together.